Welcome to podcast three in our Folio Roadshow series. I'm Greg Doran, Artistic Director Emeritus of the Royal Shakespeare Company, and I've been on a quest to see as many surviving copies as I can of Shakespeare's first folio. In this podcast, I'm going to explore some of the great variety of readers who owned a copy of the first folio. My folio roadshow has taken me as far as Tokyo. In the early summer of 2023, I visited Meisei University, which has more first folios than any other collection outside the United States. And some of them have belonged to some pretty fascinating people. One of the earliest 17th century owners was the Restoration playwright William Congreve. And the extraordinary thing about that folio is that it has a bullet wound going right through it. Congreve wrote plays like The Way of the World and Love for Love, and penned the famous line often misquoted as Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Perhaps he was speaking from the heart when he wrote those words. Congreve never married but had affairs with several women, not least of which was the married daughter of the Duke of Marlborough, with whom he is said to have fathered a child. Oh, that's the bullet wound. Yeah. That you mentioned right away that, going right the way back to that. Could be. Joining me as I followed the bullet wound through the folio was Matthew Knowles, the director of the British Council in Japan, who were hosting my visit. It's very well repaired. It goes a long way too, doesn't it? So, and the, the first hole original is, page, you can the see hole is becoming smaller and smaller yes. in the end. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, there it is. And actually, that one is still... That one is still, uh... So what happened? <laughs> what do you think happened? <laughs> who shot who? <laughs> like a James Bond again. <laughs> do you think it's as if somebody kind of went, no, stop! <laughs> and hold up their Shakespeare? It's good to know, isn't it? It's extraordinary thought, isn't it? So, I mean, it's a heavy book, so I think if somebody's firing a gun at you, it's a good thing to hold up. But assuming it went through the front cover of the of the binding. Yes, which is why it's got a new binding. Yeah, and it's why the facsimiles are the first yes. six or seven pages. Yes. It made it. It didn't make it very far through, really, did it? We could do an experiment, and we could shoot another bullet and see how far through the folio it gets. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, what a Japanese line. Um, the bullet wound finishes where Benedict says, I look for an earthquake too, then. <laughs> Is he in Japan? Yes. <laughs> yes. It's, it's extraordinary that this has a bullet wound in it mm -hmm. because it's such an intriguing story. Even though it's mended, the fact is you want to know Everybody wants to know where the bullet wound is <laughs> because it makes it a particularly special copy, yes. I guess. Um, well, 
Amazing. One of my favourite pieces of music is a sublime countertenor aria by Handel, O Lord, whose mercies numberless, is sung by David, the shepherd who stood up to Goliath, in the oratorio Saul. George Frederick Handel wrote it in 1738, when he was recovering from a stroke which he thought would end his life, and it never fails to make me weep within the first few seconds it is so ravishingly beautiful. The words were written by a man called Charles Jennens, who also contributed to some of Handel's other great works, including Belshazzar and The Messiah. Jennings not only owned a Shakespeare first folio, but himself edited several of the plays. The first time that edited versions of Shakespeare's plays had been published in individual editions, and he completed five of them before his death in 1773. His copy is also held at Mesa University. And by a strange coincidence, 200 years later, the very same copy owned by Charles Jennings was purchased by another lyricist, a man called Paul Francis Webster, and somewhat in contrast to Jennings' spiritual oratorios, Webster wrote the lyrics to Spider-Man. I can remember those lyrics very clearly from my childhood. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Is he strong? Listen, bud, he's got radioactive blood. What great lyrics! Though I have to say, I somehow never thought I would use the words Shakespeare and Spider-Man in the same sentence. And not only did Paul Francis Webster write Spider-Man, he also won an Oscar for the lyrics to Once I Had a Secret Love from the film of Calamity Jane with Doris Day in 1953. Webster described his folios, he had copies of all four folios, as standing like giant redwoods above the other books in his library. A very Californian way of putting it. Come, thou mortal wretch. With thy sharp teeth, this knot intrinsicate of life at once untie. Poor venomous fool, be angry and dispatch. Oh, couldst thou speak, that I might hear thee call great Caesar as unpolicied. Oh, Eastern star. Peace, peace. Dost thou not see my baby at my breast that sucks the nurse asleep? Oh, break, oh, break. As sweet as balm. As soft as air, as gentle. Oh, Antony! Nay, I will take thee too. What? Should I stay? In this vile world. So fare thee well. Now boast thee death. In thy possession lies, alas, unparalleled.
That was Janet Sussman, playing Cleopatra in Trevor Nunn's famous 1972 RSC production with Rosemary McHale as Charmian. There have been many interesting women who have owned a first folio. A copy in the Folger Library in Washington is sometimes referred to as the feminist folio. Not only has it two different female owners, but they have left distinct marks in the copy. Inscribed in a 17th century hand are the words, Mary Child is the true possessor of this book. As a young girl, Lady Louisa Lennox Tye buckled on the Duke of Wellington's sword on the eve of the Battle of Waterloo. She too owned a copy. So did Cora Livingston, who was born in New Orleans before the American Civil War and was regarded as one of the great southern belles of the age. And Mrs Ethel Crocker, who ran soup kitchens after the San Francisco earthquake. And May Cadwell, the notorious New York Society socialite who once exchanged her million-dollar home for a string of pearls. They all owned copies of the folio, too. Caroline Newton, a psychoanalyst who had worked with Freud in Vienna and gave refuge to Thomas Mann at her Rhode Island home when his family fled Hitler in the 1930s, she bequeathed her copy of the first folio to Bryn Mawr College in Philadelphia. And then there's Anne Humphreys, the humble Stockport housewife, who discovered in 2004 that she had inherited a first folio from her second cousin once removed and ended up on the Richard and Judy show describing her amazement at the bequest. But one of the women who owned a first folio had a particular relationship to Shakespeare. Anne Damer was a sculptor which was a rare craft for a woman to pursue in the late 18th century. She had a fascinating life and was part of the social set surrounding Georgiana, the Duchess of Devonshire, played by Keira Knightley in the movie The Duchess. Her husband died after a short, loveless marriage and she was free to travel. In Paris, Napoleon gave her a miniature of his portrait encrusted with diamonds. She sculpted a bust of Admiral Lord Nelson in Naples, and he gave her the coat he had worn at the Battle of the Nile. In London, she was asked by Josiah Boydell to contribute artwork to his great Shakespeare gallery, which opened in 1789 in Pall Mall. And she carved two bas-reliefs, now sadly lost. One portrays Cleopatra with her women in the monument at the end of the play, as she plies the asp to her breast. The other bas-relief she sculpted depicts the moment when Coriolanus has returned in triumph to Rome and meets his mother and his wife. Apparently the great actress Sarah Siddons posed for Volumnia and her brother, John Philip Kemble, posed as Coriolanus. You have, I know, petitioned all the gods for my prosperity. <laughs> Nay, my good soldier, Alf. Oh, my gentle Marcius. Worthy Caius. <laughs> and by deed achieving honour, newly named, what is it? Coriolanus, must I call thee? <gasps> but oh, thy wife. My gracious silence, hail. 
Wouldst thou have laughed and I come coffined home, that weeps to see me try? Ah, my dear, such eyes the widows in Corrales wear, and mothers that lack sons. Now the that was Chopé de Risu as Coriolanus and Hayden Gwynne as his mother Volumnia in Angus Jackson's 2017 RSC production. Anne had a number of very close female friends and was frequently the target of gossip in Georgian London as a lesbian. The famous Hollywood sign looks out over the urban sprawl of Los Angeles. The sign went up originally in 1923. That same year, a fire broke out in the home of William Andrews Clark Jr. in the West Adams neighborhood of LA. The owner was a great collector and bibliophile, and he decided to house his collection in a purpose-built library designed to be not only fireproof, but to employ the latest earthquake survival technology. His Beaux-Arts library building was completed in 1926. In November of 2022, I visited the splendid William Andrews Clark Library to see their copy of the first folio. The librarian, Nina Schneider, takes us through the features of their folio. The striking, swirling bookplate sports a writhing octopus and reveals that it was owned by W.K. Bixby. William Keeney Bixby was the richest man in St. Louis and once made every railroad car in America, apparently. And there is a more sedate, black leather bookplate in the corner. It is tooled in gold, as the figure of an owl perched on a book of law with a globe, and the name of the owner, William Andrews Clark, Jr. William Andrews Clark was a philanthropist who generously supported the Los Angeles Philharmonic and contributed substantially to the construction of the Hollywood Bowl. But in 1928, he purchased a huge collection of the work of Oscar Wilde. These books, plays and private papers now constitute the most significant collection of Wilde in the world. Interesting that William Andrews Clark was so keen on Oscar Wilde. But as Nina shows us around the Beaux-Arts building, William Andrews Clark Jr.'s interests begin to become more apparent. In the reception room, there's a rather dramatic and tender 17th-century portrait of a tousled-haired youth, John Ogilby. He was a dancer who appeared in masks at the Jacobean court. The barrel vaulting of the entrance hall is painted to resemble Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. And then we notice that all the ignudi, the hunky male nudes languidly draped around the garlands of fruit, all have the same features. They are portraits of Harrison Post, Clark's assistant librarian. Harrison Post was, of course, Clark's lover. Provoking scandal, Clark installed Harrison Post in a Mediterranean-style villa across the road from his house and bought him a convertible Rolls-Royce. Legend tells yeah. <laughs> um, that the, one of the other reasons he 
might have given it to UCLA is because after his second wife died, he came out as a gay man, and there was a lot of scandal mm. about that. At so the time. what date is this ish? What's the kind of nineteen twenties? Um, it was before nineteen twenty four. It was before he built the library. Okay. Um, and as he lived here, there were houses. I mean, it was just a regular, you know, city yeah, block yeah. with with houses. Yeah. And as he bought his house, and as houses were coming up for sale, he would buy them and tear them down, right. and they just have this little thing for himself. And the wall that is around the property, apparently, um, he had that built because when his son was. I don't know how old he was, but there were like kidnapping threats against him for like ransom and stuff because he was you know, yeah. wealthy enough. Yeah. Um, but then because of this wall, there are all these rumors of like, you know, like homosexual romps, like orgies <laughs> and people running around naked and stuff. So who knows if any of this is But anyway, so that is one reason why he may have wow. done that. And this is just, none, none of it's confirmed. We, this is also the problem is we don't have any of his personal papers after he died. Not confirmed that he was gay or that it was public knowledge that he had become out as gay? Um, I think it was knowledge in certain circles. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's we known. know for a fact that he was gay, yeah. but we don't know like who knew. We think it's just like a yeah. small circle of people. I'm so delighted to find that one of the owners of the first folio was gay. That's, that's <laughs> such a treat to know. <laughs> um, I find myself delighted, finally, to have identified my first verifiably gay owner of a first folio. Not, perhaps, surprising that it should be here, in California, seen as the most liberal of all the American states with regards to gay rights since the 1970s. And finally, in this podcast, exploring some of the fascinating folk who have owned First Folios, I want to introduce a man whose story intrigues me almost as much as the folio he owned has managed to elude me so far. Apsley Cherry Garrard was the youngest member of Scott's ill-fated Terra Nova expedition to Antarctica. He wrote a book about it called The Worst Journey in the World, and it is one of the most terrifying travel books I have ever read. In fact, the journey to which the title alludes is not the terrible final march of Scott and his men to the South Pole, but an exploratory mission by Cherry Garrard and two companions to collect the eggs of the Emperor Penguin. They hoped that by examining the penguin embryos, they might determine a missing evolutionary link between birds and reptiles but as the penguins only laid their eggs in the depths of the Antarctic winter, it meant trekking for five weeks to Cape Crozier through treacherous terrain in the dark in sub-zero temperatures. He calls it the winter journey. Terry Garrard describes the freezing cold, the breath which soldered their balaclavas tightly to their heads, the iced-up sleeping bags, the frost-bitten toes. Cherry Garrard's teeth chattered so hard in the cold, he shattered them. He describes the perils of the terrain, the deep crevasses in the ice, 
the blizzards and the unearthly deep booming of the ice. But worst of all is the dark. As they made their way through the dark, perilous terrain, riven with huge, hidden crevasses in the ice, Cherry Garrard and his two companions begin to think frequently about death. Thoughts of death amidst the cold, the ice, the wind. I begin to wonder if Cherry Garrard ever turned in his copy of the first folio to this passage in Measure for Measure. I but to die, and go we know not where, to lie in cold obstruction and to rot, this sensible, warm motion to become a kneaded clod, and the delighted spirit to bathe in fiery floods, or to reside in thrilling region of thick ribbed ice, to be imprisoned in the viewless winds and blown with restless violence round about the pendant world, or to be worse than worst of those that lawless and incertain thought imagine howling. Tis too horrible. The weariest and most loathed worldly life that age, ache, penury and imprisonment can lay on nature is a paradise to what we fear of death. To reside in thrilling region of thick ribbed ice, to be imprisoned in the viewless winds. How could Shakespeare have described almost exactly what that young Edwardian Antarctic explorer experienced in 1911. So when I got the opportunity to visit Japan and see the multiple copies of the first folio they hold at Mesa University, the one I really wanted to see was the copy owned by Apsley Cherry Garrard. Mesa had shared one of its dozen folios with the world, the librarian admitted. Later, I discovered that it had been purchased by the University of British Columbia and is now kept in a library vault in Vancouver. I had travelled 6,000 miles eastward ho to see Apsley Cherry Garrard's copy. Now, if I wanted to see this, to me, very special copy, I would have to travel 5,000 miles in the opposite direction. So... What do all these folios tell us? A restoration playwright? An 18th century lesbian sculptor? An Edwardian Antarctic explorer? A gay millionaire in 20s Hollywood? And an Oscar-winning lyricist? Well, perhaps as Shakespeare himself wrote, one touch of nature makes the whole world kin. In the next podcast, as I continue my Folio Roadshow, I want to track how so many of them ended up in the United States. Join me then. <laughs>